Hey everyone, thanks for checking out the Human Performance Outliers podcast. In case you haven't noticed, we are now up on Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com backslash HPO podcast. You can also just click on the link in the podcast notes and it'll take you right to our page. For the listeners that have already joined us, thank you so much. Your support is greatly appreciated. Uh, We have some pretty cool goodies that we're rolling out for the Patreon supporters, including a front-of-the-line Q&A, some early podcast release options, as well as the chance to even join the show. So please consider checking out that page if you haven't yet. Also, if you do listen to us on a podcast hosting site, if you have the option, please consider subscribing. By subscribing, you'll get the most up-to-date episode as soon as it's released. Thank you very much, and enjoy the show. Good, good. Thanks for coming coming on and making time for the show. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you guys. Been a big fan of both of you for a while now. <laughs> good to hear. <laughs> We've had a lot of fun think, with the show, well, so good. it's been fun to hear from people about the, how they've been listening to it and stuff like that. And then, uh, like yourself, we found some pretty cool guests through it, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Hey, Rob, uh, welcome. I appreciate it. You know, uh, you know, obviously, thanks for the service. I mean, I, I know exactly, you know, I was I was over there in Afghanistan and, I, you know, I, I took care of guys like you. And I got to tell you, man, it's this, this tremendous uh, seeing you uh, where you've come from that. Hey, let, let's get a little background going, man. And then we're going to get into okay. it because just where are you from? Tell me about, you know, let, let's talk about when you were a little bit younger. You know, just did you did you do sports? Because obviously now you're just crushing it on on marathons and all that stuff. But when you were younger, you know, say high school, you know, before you got into the Marines and stuff like that, what kind of uh, uh, what kind of stuff did you do? Yeah, you know, growing up in, in terms of sports, I I played uh, played baseball and soccer like all the way until ninth grade. Um, and then I kind of had a, a late growth spurt. So in ninth grade, I was only about, I think I was 88 pounds in ninth grade. So <laughs> I, I kind of fell behind, uh, on the physical aspects of, you know, the sports that I was trying to do. So I didn't really make any teams. Um, and then I did wrestling in 10th grade JV. And then after that, I kind of got into computers and I got into just a different stuff and I didn't actually get back into the fitness kind of thing uh when until i joined the marine corps uh in 2006 and then besides that childhood stuff i grew up on a farm uh, on a horse farm and so i just spent my summers and most of my springs just doing you know all sorts of farm chores cleaning horse stalls weed whacking fence lines that kind of stuff so i mean yeah when you get in marines you you don't really have a choice but to be into fitness at that point you know (laughs) (laughs) you you don't (laughs) you don't have that option but uh what what part of the country are you in right now i live in vienna virginia i grew up in uh loudon county virginia which is it's just a little ways west of uh of dc so i'm uh i lived in salt lake city uh in 2015 and 16 i lived in florida for a short period uh but mostly i spent spent in virginia Okay. So, but you know, I, you know, it's just, you know, when Zach told me about you and then I kind of read about you, I mean, it's truly amazing stuff you've, you've done in the last, you know, you know, decade or so, you know, since, since you had that, uh, injury you had, you suffered in, in Afghanistan, but let me, you know, cause I like some people know I was a trauma surgeon in Afghanistan and I, I will tell you, you know, when I got over there and I saw all kinds, I mean, I was, 
I know you were. You said you were down in Helmand Province, and I was up in I was up in Bagram, and so I was at you know the the main medical facility, and we took care of all these injuries. I mean, constant barrage that every single day. But when I flew in there, you know, because I had trained, you know, doing my orthopedic surgery, and, I, and I'd seen injuries, and I'd seen people that were in train crashes and industrial accidents, and you know, a lot of trauma. But when you get there, I mean, it's nothing can prepare you for that. And I remember I got off the plane. We you know we flew into Manus. Air Force Base up in Kyrgyzstan, and then we and we and we flew into yeah. Bagram, you know, middle of the night. You know, they turn the lights off so they don't shoot at you. You know, all that crap that they got to do. So we get in there. You know, you get in your big, you know, your big, your big, you know, your big sleeping facilities, like 200 guys all sleeping in cots. We get in there. I mean, we're tired. We roll out, and then we meet with the army because I was Air Force. We get with the army guys, and I mean, the very very first day we walk in there, like, oh, come help us in the OR. The first thing that happens, they had some Canadian Special Forces dude. Stepped on a landmine, lost both his legs, double amputee. And I'm seeing there sitting this guy. He's like 20, 21, 22-year-old kid, young kid, good-looking kid, lice in front of him, boom, awful, awful accident. I mean, that that really yeah. – I mean, I had a lot of memories of being over there. But that was one of the, the first things that shocked me that said, wow, welcome to war. This is this is it. This is the shit. This is awful stuff. And I saw that stuff day in and day out and all kinds of horrible stuff. But that one particular thing really got to me because, I, you know, I'm an athlete and I was thinking, man, what would I do if, you know, my legs were gone? What would, how would that have changed my life? And I know you, you physically went through that and survived it and have come through that. But can you walk us through, you know, a little bit about the Marines, a little bit what's going on? Because I think you were down in Helmand Province. And I mean, that's where, you know, the, the, uh, the Afghans grow all their poppy seeds, you know, they're, they're selling all that, selling all that, you know, all that, all that heroin and stuff like that, making money. The, the, the Taliban didn't used to be against that until they found out they can make a lot of money with it. Right. So now they're, now they're, now they're growing the stuff. And I, and I, I don't know where you sent down to Kandahar. I would imagine when we went to Kandahar, perhaps, you know, with those injuries, but maybe not, maybe you went to Bagram and then they shipped you out, I'm sure. But tell me a little bit about, a little bit about your experience over there. Tell us a little bit about that accent. I know, I mean, it's a tough experience, but if you, if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. Uh, I was actually in Sangin district of Helmand province. So, uh, I joined the Marine Corps in 2006 uh, as a combat engineer and I did one deployment. My first deployment was to, uh, Iraq in 2008 in Habania. And Iraq was kind of dying down at that point a little bit. So there not a whole lot happened on that deployment for us. Um, but then we went to Afghanistan and Afghanistan in 2010 was picking back up. And so they said, I, I was attached to a third battalion, seventh Marine Corps regiment, uh, kilo company, third platoon as their combat engineer, uh, advisor slash attachment guy. So my specialty with this platoon was to use explosives, to breach obstacles, uh, doors, walls, trees, that kind of stuff. Um, and also clear routes through danger areas. So, we're talking if we approach to uh, up to a bridge or something, uh, the Taliban kind of knows that we have to use this certain bridge to get across a big river. We can't, you know, get off all, swim across in all of our gear or anything. So they know that we're going to go across this bridge. So they plant their IEDs in our most likely avenues that we're going to that we're going to use. So whenever we would come up to one of these choke points, danger areas. Uh, the infantry guys would send me out in front and I would plot a course using a metal detector uh, across a bridge or through the choke point or whatever and mark it with uh, chem lights or whatever I had and then I would get to the other side and then they would come and follow me uh, using that little trail of breadcrumbs that I left 
and then uh, we would continue on with the mission. So that was my job in, in Afghanistan. Um, and so we get to Sangin in, I think it was July, uh, we got there into Sangin in t- of 2010, and we take over from the British forces that had been there. Um, and they just didn't have enough guys to really do much. So they were kind of just in a holding pattern, holding their area. They were, they didn't have a whole lot of guys that they, where they could send out security patrols or anything like that. Um, so they called us in the Marines. We took over from, from them. And then we start pushing into Taliban territory. Um, and we basically what we do is just walk out to a compound and take it over, sweep it and take it over. And then we set that up as a forward operating base, and then we walk a little bit further, and then we kind of keep repeating that. And, you know, if the Taliban wants to shoot at us, we shoot back. Uh, And then we just kind of keep walking until – and they keep falling back. So we just start taking over territory. And on one of these days, we are kind of doing another push, taking over territory, and I'm with a squad that's providing security for a vehicle column. And – you know, the day was pretty quiet for the most part for us, not, not a whole lot. There was some firefights going on off in the distance. Um, not a whole lot going on for us. And then at around 1 o'clock on uh, the 22nd of July, we we uh, just took a break, you know, laid down, get some food, eat some, uh, uh, drink some water, that kind of stuff. And then we stood back up to continue on, and the point man of our, our patrol steps on an IED. And so luckily for him, the IED malfunctioned and it did what, what we call a low order detonation. So all that happened was the blasting cap went off. And so I don't know how much you guys know about, you know, explosives or anything, but what you do is you put a really, a highly sensitive explosive into a little cap, like a half a pen size cap. And you stick that into your main charge. So like, a stick of C4. What they were using in Afghanistan was a, uh, a lot of the times they would just have jugs filled with homemade explosives, so homemade ammonium nitrate. And they'd stick that in there, and then when you send an electric current through that blasting cap, that's enough to set off that blasting cap, and then the blasting cap sets off the main charge. Uh, so whatever for whatever reason, the guy you know that, that made his IED didn't know what he was doing, so... Uh, the blasting cap didn't set off the main charge, but at that point, that now becomes a danger area because I'm sure you guys know the Taliban puts secondary and tertiary IEDs in there. Uh, so I had to guide us through that area, and I started going through my process of trying to clear the route through that that spot, and that's when I hit the IED. Uh, and unfortunately, the guy that made mine knew what he was doing, so and that resulted in double above knee amputations. And then I think I went through Camp Leatherneck, and then I think I did go through Bagram, and then to Launchstool, Germany, and then to Bethesda, Maryland. Yeah, yeah. I mean that. Wow. I mean that. That's just you know amazing. You know, and, and and yeah, that's how that's how I saw. You know, we would see the guys that would go through the, you know, the external. You know, like the 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 fobs and stuff like that. And then we they would come to us, and then we would ship them off to Germany, and then they'd get you know rerouted to us. And you probably being attached to the Navy, you, you went to Bethesda. A lot of guys went to to Bamsi, you know, some of the army guys out in San Antonio, but you know, it's, it's, I mean, so it's such a guy, I mean, it's almost pointless to some point, you know, I, I saw, 
you know, I got one thing about these these bombs. I mean, the first thing the Taliban, the other thing he doesn't tell you about is often they'll cover them in filth. They'll put human oh, yeah. feces in some of these things to try to make them as contaminated as possible. I mean, the wounds are awful. I mean, I took care of so many blast injuries where guys would have amputations, but the shrapnel, because there's such force, would push shrapnel two or three feet up into the body. You know, you know, it would be up way up into the body, way farther than the initial entry point. I mean, covered in filth. I mean, they would they would put in there. Oftentimes, they would put ball bearings and stuff like that in there. So you'd have pieces of ball ball bearings and shrapnel over the bodies to do as much damage as possible. Just terrible, terrible stuff. I mean, we took care of. You know, we 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 took care of, and we had to take care of some of these Taliban guys. We had one guy. This, I remember this guy. He was a 17 year old kid who was setting up an IED and he blew himself up setting it up both legs both arms you know he's just some 17 year old kid and you know you know it's war and some of these people you know they're the enemy but some of them you got to look at some of these guys are just forced to do it because the Taliban says you go fight for us we'll kill your family stuff so it's hard to you know necessarily you know hate on everybody like that you know as a physician all I'm there is I got to just take care of these people and we saw it day in and day out but in addition to that I mean, that obviously horrendous injury. And I didn't realize it was double AKs, which is, that's amazing what you do above knees. But I mean, because yeah. you know, I mean, Zach, as, as we'll go into this, the energy requirements from an above knee amputation just to amulate, they're way, way higher than they are for, you know, even a below knee amputation and then even, you know, certainly a, a person with, with two full legs. But the, you know, the other injuries that occur, I mean, the blast injuries to the lungs, the, the concussive injuries to the head, did you suffer from any of that as well? Or, I mean, other than the obvious leg injuries, did you, were you having any burn injuries anywhere else? Do you still have shrapnel in you? What yeah. else has gone on with that? Uh, yeah, so it's actually interesting you bring up the, the infection stuff because I was actually, technically I was below the knee uh, at site of injury. So the, the, the blast just severed me below the knee. Um, but like you said, they the bacteria over there, a lot of the times, in order to save the person's life, they have to amputate higher up. And also, um, I'm sure you probably ran into this a lot, where you had to make the decision of whether or not there was enough viable tissue you know, below the knee to really put a prosthetic on or anything like that. So for whatever reason, they had to uh, revise and amputate above the knee. And then I had uh, both my eardrums were perforated, obviously, um, and then besides that, it was, I got a little bit of burns on my hands, but there, you know, no real residual effects there on my hands. And then I had a lot of injury, uh, cuts and deep cuts in my buttocks, um, to the point where it was actually kind of, it covered kind of my whole, my whole ass. And it was pretty close into, uh, the anus. So what they ended up doing was, they diverted my intestines to a colostomy just to make sure that there wasn't any kind of risk of infection. Um, but that was about it. And then, you know, all that stuff has been reversed. Um, the colostomy got reversed and all of the wounds on my butt have, you know, healed up. And really all it is is just uh, the amputations at this point. Yeah, I mean, that, and, and that's, again, just, just crazy stuff. You know, like we said about what I learned over there, we learned very, for my partner, we had two orthopedic guys, a guy named Tom Large out of North Carolina, me and him were out there, and we learned very quickly 
we couldn't close any amputations in a war wound. We and we very often had to revise up higher because you know you you'd get the initial amputation, you'd wash it out, you'd bandage it up, you wouldn't close the skin because you knew you'd be back there washing things out day in and day out. And then you'd figure out how much would end ultimately end up being viable. And, and just like you said, often yeah. you end up with a with an above knee amputation. And I'm gonna Zach, I'm gonna let you get in here in just a second, but I'm gonna I'm gonna just kind of press this a little bit more sure. because the other thing, and this uh, so much respect for you because you're bringing attention to this stuff by some of the charity work you're doing with all these uh, athletic performances. But you know, obviously the mental and the psychological trauma that occurs, we have this humongous issue with veteran suicide, veteran depression, post traumatic stress yeah. disorder so on and so forth that, that comes with this stuff. And a lot of times those things aren't visible. You know, obviously you lost your legs. It's very clear what's going on. A lot of these guys don't have these glaring physical injuries that they can point to, but they're just as suffering just as much mentally. And I mean, the mental aspect of it is often the difference between doing what you're doing and, and you know, succeeding potentially versus not, you know, becoming a drug addict or an alcoholic or living on the streets or having horrible relationships and stuff like that. And so some of that, you know, we've had a number of guests on here and we've talked to George Eads, we've talked to Amber O'Hearn, we've talked to Michaela uh, Peterson on previous mm-hmm. episodes and we go into mental health. And I think certainly I think nutrition has a role in that, but there's other things obviously that go with that. Let me, you know, when you go through a traumatic awful experience, life-changing experience like this. Some people say it changes you. I think it kind of tends to reveal who you are in more cases than, than, than anything. And so oh, yeah. prior to this, I mean, you know, what kind of person were you? Were you, uh, were you an upbeat, easygoing guy? Were you, were you, I mean, I, I, I just wonder how much that really changes a person or if it just unmasks you, you know, because when you face something like you're facing, you're forced to dig down and see who you really are. And I think some people, it doesn't go well. Some people, it goes well. And, and then again, I, I, don't think, I don't think we can discount the, the role of physiology that's going on with some of this stuff. And so it's a broad topic, but I'd like to hear your, you know, what's keeping you out there doing these things and not being on the streets doing drugs and being homeless? I mean, what's the difference? I think one of the main things about me is that I'm always, I'm always apt to be the one to make the sacrifice. So in Iraq, just for example, there was this one operation we had to do where we had to get in these boats and then go into the, one of the rivers that we were around, which is disgusting, it was a disgusting river. And we had to like wade through the river and then go sweep these islands and see if there were any weapons caches on there. So we did that for a day, and then everybody was like, oh, my God, thank goodness that's over. We hated that, and then we get back, and we get kind of cleaned up, and then the guy, or our, our platoon sergeant comes in, and he says, all right, well, uh, we need to do that again tomorrow, So, but we only need two people this time, so who wants to go? And I was like, you know, I will go, because I don't want the other guys to have to go through that again, so I volunteered. And so I think I already, I, I always had this kind of aptitude for for selflessness. Um, not trying to toot my own horn, but I kind of am always a little bit more willing to to be the one to make the sacrifice. So when I'm forced, or when I'm met with a challenging situation or a tragedy, I think I have a tendency to make it about somebody else. So. When I initially got hurt, um, 
when I was in Germany, you're not supposed to wake up when you go through Germany, but I woke up for like 10 minutes or something. And I was pretty high on, you know, pain medication, but I asked somebody to go and try and find me a stupid looking hat that I could wear for when my mom saw me for the first time. So I could have this, this ridiculous hat on. And then when I, they wheeled me out, she would see that and maybe she'd laugh or something. Um, so I think when they couldn't find a hat, by the way. But funnily enough, when my mom showed up, she somebody had given her a pirate hat to, to give to me. So I don't know uh, if that's just serendipity or what. But um, So I, have, I think I have a tendency to try and make it about somebody else. So when I first got to the hospital, I realized, you know, I have to be strong. I have to be resilient so that my mom is and my dad and my sister and my brother and all my friends so so they feel better and so i think when you're doing something for somebody else or for for a purpose that you care about more than yourself then that is what forces you to be able to rise to the occasion so i think that had to do with it uh in the beginning and then as i kind of set that precedent and as I went on, I was like, well, I can't go back on this now because that would be even worse for my family and friends to see me doing well and then and then plummet. Um, and then by the time I, I you know, I had right away, I, I wanted to learn how to walk again. I wanted to get my self-reliance back. And then, you know, things just kind of snowballed. Uh, I had that mission and then I wanted to go to the Paralympics and I had that mission and then. I wanted to ride my bike cross country. Had that mission, so these all these missions just kind of kept. And I was never really, you know, missionless. So I think the combination of those two things is probably what. And then, you know, a lot of luck too. I think. Yeah. You, what? Uh, go ahead, Zach. I was just gonna say, like that. That's part of the, this that kind of intrigues me the most is. Uh, you know, there's kind of like, well, I mean, first of all, there's certainly a mental and a physical kind of duality going on where um, you're kind of thrust into like two completely different scenarios from a mental and a physical standpoint, like in a, in a matter of moments. And then, you know, once you get through some of those like early stages of just like the 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 medical treatment that that needed to be done, uh, you, you're kind of left with like this scenario where, well, where do I start? both physically and mentally and it sounds like to you it was like you kind of had these like little benchmarks that you knew you kind of had to go through along the way and my thought is that a lot of people would maybe get hung up on that where they're like okay I want to be able to eventually you know walk run with whatever means is provided to me what was it like to kind of know like that that might be a ways off and you're going to have to do all these really little missions or little goals to even kind of put yourself in position to do some of those bigger things. Yeah. You know, luckily, um, I wasn't the first amputee to go through this system. I was probably, you know, among the thousands. Um, so a good thing is that the nurses and the physical therapists that I worked with at first had already seen guys come through and seen what they were capable of doing after a year, or a year and a half. And so they kind of told me, they're like, you know, you know, you're like this now, you're kind of helpless now, but you know, give yourself a year and you'll probably be walking around everywhere. So that helped. And then they would actually arrange for guys that had transferred over to Walter Reed to come back to Bethesda and, you know, visit the newly injured uh, Marines and sailors. 
And so I would actually, I could actually physically see, you know, guys with, not, I didn't see any double above knee amputees, I don't think, but there'd be guys that were coming in with prosthetics and I'd say, oh, but he's just walking, he's walking just fine. And then so I knew it was possible because I'd seen it with my own eyes. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of, I, I kind of knew that going into it, but yeah, there's, you know, a thousand different steps that you have to take before you get there. And so I just kind of, you know, it's kind of like when you're, when you're running a hundred mile or when you did your 24 hour, uh, challenge, I'm sure you kind of were just like, all right, just do this lap. Mm-hmm. And then the next lap you were just do this lap. And so I just kind of had to have those little milestones for myself. So at first, you know, first thing I did, uh, was just the physical therapist came in and said, lift your stumps. And that was it. I just lifted them both 10 times and I was exhausted for the day. And then over time, you know, it's like, all right, today we're going to try and get into the wheelchair. And I get into it with help. I think the nurses have to basically drag me on this little cloth pad into my chair. And then, you know, I wheel around. And then after that, you know, get into the wheelchair by yourself. And then and then you're all healed, and then you go get fitted for prosthetics, and then you put them on, and then you get better. And so you just take these little small incremental steps, and then eventually you get to, you know, where I am now, where I can I can run, I can do anything. Yeah, you know, that's actually kind of another thought I, or thing I was wondering what you what your thought process went through too. And when I look at like guys and gals in ultra marathon running kind of approach the sport, I, I see kind of two things happening a lot of times. Like one is you'll get some of these folks who will be like, you know, they'll just get started and they're already thinking like, well, in three years, I'm going to break this record. I'm going to set this course record. I'm going to win this event. And they're able to kind of then back up and then start building what needs to be done to get to that point. So they kind of have this big long-term goal in their mind, but they also kind of know they have steps to take along the way and they're able to kind of be patient. And then there's other folks who kind of get into the sport, I think, and they find themselves out throughout that process and they end up at that spot, but they may not have been able to tell you that that was ever possible until right before it happens. So yeah. like for you, was that kind of like, did you take one of those two ways? Were you like, eventually I want to do something like so inspiring that I can do 31 marathons in 31 days? Or was it more of like, kind of let's figure out what I can do. And then all of a sudden, once you do one thing, another thing would pop in your head. Well, if I can do this, then maybe I can do that. And then it kind of keeps going that way. It was kind of the latter of the two, I think. Um, yeah, I didn't. When I first got to the hospital, I was just focused on just getting back to a sense of normalcy, mm-hmm. really. Um, but through doing that, I discovered. So I was I was kind of looking for ways that I could work out in the gym or push myself in that physical manner. And so that led me to research something that made me find the Paralympics and I found Paralympic rowing. And then from there, you know, I kind of became an athlete and I did two years of rowing. And then, you know, during that time I just got into other interests and I kind of developed that ability to, you know, train almost every day. And then that kind of, I had another interest. I, I, you know, I I wanted to ride my bike across the country. So, you know, that kind of led into that. And then the bike riding led into uh, trying to do triathlon in the Paralympics. And then I failed to do that. But from the triathlon, I learned that I had a pretty decent talent for running. And so that kind of fed into uh, the marathon challenge. So 
yeah, I didn't really have a big plan. Um, you know, in 10 years, I want to be able to do this. But I've always had something in the relatively immediate future that I was that I was striving for. You know, uh, again, hats off for all the stuff you've done. You know, as you may or may not know, I, I do some rowing on just on the indoor stuff on the yeah. concept too, and, and do fairly well with that. But you know, the boat obviously is a skill. You, you got to, you know, I'm sure you probably tipped over in the water a few times just learn how to do the <laughs> damn thing. But you know, and and that's that's a different sort of thing. And then to transition to cycling and then to transition to rowing, it to me is very, it's very interesting. You know, I, I, I've switched through a lot of sports over the years and have been fortunate to have success in different sports, but you know, the, uh, I'm just, again, I, I didn't realize you were above knee and that, that to me makes it even more <laughs> impressive because I thought you're below knee and below knee is again, it's still amazing, but, uh, you know, you've got, uh, uh, you know, just to put it into perspective, Zach, in case you don't know that, you know, if you look at oxygen requirement studies on people with above knee amputations, just to walk at half speed of what a normal person can walk with, 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 with two, two intact legs, is about 65% more energy and oxygen requirements uh, than, you know, someone who doesn't have above knee amputations. And then to put it into perspective that now you run you know, not one marathon, but 31 marathons in, in 31 days is just mind-boggling to say the least. And I think it's amazing what 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 you're capable of once you do. Let me ask you just another question: Are you in chronic pain? Do you still have issues? Because a lot of people that have had amputation, you know, they have neuropathic or you know phantom limb pain or pain around the stump sites or different stuff. Is there any? Do you deal with any of those issues currently? Not really. Uh, you know, I'm I'm lucky in that I you know I may be missing some parts of my body. But everything that I do have functions normally and functions kind of optimally. Um, I get phantom pain, you know, from time to time. Um, not very often, maybe once or twice a day for maybe two or three seconds. My toe will throb or something or my foot will itch or something like that. And so I'm actually, maybe you can actually uh, tell me what you think of this idea. So. You know how pickle juice is supposed to fend <laughs> off cravings. I was wondering if maybe pickle juice could be a cure for phantom pain, like if you drink it when you're having it. I haven't tried it yet, but I'll let you know. I, I'll let you know what happens. Yeah, let me know. I, I don't know there's any good studies on, on that stuff. But, yeah, for you guys that don't know phantom limb pain, you know, what happens is a lot of people when they, you know, they lose their limb, you know, the nerves are still intact. And so the nerves still think the limb is there. And so that's why he's saying scratch my toe. And he, and he has a sensation that those things are there. And that often persists for sometimes forever, but often for a long period of time. And so uh, did you have any trouble with, I'm sure you went through several prostheses, you know, one, you know, for regular ambulation and then for competing. And so did you have any trouble over the years, you know, messing with different sockets and, and different prostheses before you got the ones that worked well for you? A little bit, you know. It's it's always a puzzle, um, you know. And luckily, I was paired with a prosthetist that was extremely curious and a, you know an incredible engineer. And so, when I when I was learning how to ride a bicycle again in uh, in therapy, I had a lot of trouble keeping my right leg on. Because you have to have – the way that a lot of prosthetics fit is is from suction. And so when I was riding the bike, I would keep losing suction. So it would kind of work itself off and it would keep falling off. And then so he – I found out about some other 
some other guy called um, that had this thing called a, a double wall socket. And so I asked my proselytist to, to make me one of those for that leg in hopes that it would work better, and it did. And, you know, my leg stayed on perfectly. And so that was probably the, the biggest challenge I had, but the, really the big challenge with prosthetics in general, uh, there's always something that can be engineered and figured out. So my prosthetist figured out how to do the bike riding legs when you know nobody that came through Walter Reed had ever done that before. And we, have, we figured out how to run for a double above knee amputee. Uh, but the biggest challenge with, with prosthetics is getting them to the point where they're tight enough that they're that they but not so tight that they're uncomfortable and then that they do and minimizing the movement that they do against your leg because that is what produces kind of the you can get you know uh skin rubbed off and that kind of thing and if that happens then that's going to limit your ability to use the prosthetic so you have to find that perfect level of comfort um, and so that's the big challenge. And so you have things like fly socks. So if you're, if your socket is too big, you put these little socks on to make your stump thicker and then get that perfect, uh, that tight fit. Hey, let's, let's talk about your training because I mean, you know, obviously, you know, you're doing stuff that, you know, not, no, nobody really runs 31 marathons in 31 days, irrespective of if you got legs or not. I mean, you know, what's the guy's yeah. name? Dean, Dean, uh, what's the guy's name? Uh, Zach, Z, Z, Dean Karnassus, some guy, but that's, that's still, that's, again, this is human performance outliers. That's, that's outlier stuff, regardless of who you are. And so right. let's get into your training, your diet, your nutrition, your strategy, your exercise, because that's, to me, I mean, that, you're, you're doing, you're doing stuff that, you know, you know, that's way on the edge regardless. And, and so let's yeah. get into that stuff a little bit. So, uh, you start out rowing and tell me a little about your rowing training and, and then let's go through the progression. Zach, jump in there with some questions. Cause this will be interesting stuff. Yeah. 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 So, uh, I was in rowing. I was what's called, uh, my category was trunk and arms. So obviously I, I don't have the knees, so I can't row sliding seat. And so what they do is they just put a fixed seat in a boat and they strap your legs down, and then and that's how you row. So you just row arms and back only. I'm sure you've done plenty of that in your in your training. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, you, so, you can do that. But I mean, do you ever did you ever do that on Concept Two? Because Concept Two has that the indoor stuff with the same sort of situation. Did you ever try any of those things? I did a little bit with the Concept Two. Uh, so the. The way it worked for us was I didn't. I started kind of learning how to row in summer of 2011. The Paralympics were in September of 2012, so I spent most of my time on the water because I had a lot of technique that I could learn, um, and that was going to give me bigger dividends than just you know kind of rowing on the on the erg machine. So. My partner and I, so my category was trunk and arms, and the boat class was trunk and arms mixed double skull. So it was me and another, and a girl in the boat. Um, and so we didn't actually start training full time, you know, like a, a real athlete should train until about January 1st of 2012. And so, you know, normally I, you know, you would want to do 
a base building period and then you kind of refine that. We didn't really have enough time to do all that. So we basically just kind of went straight into learning technique and intervals and just kind of accelerated that program. So what we would do is we moved down to Florida so we could train through the winter on the water. We would train twice a day, six days a week, take Sunday off. And it would usually be, I think, intervals three times a week, gym three times a week, and then kind of recovery rows, technique rows uh, twice a week. And, yeah, we just kind of followed that pattern. And then in, in March of 2012, we had to win what's called the uh, U.S. Rowing Trials. So they have a big race, and all the Trunk and Arms Mixed Doubles Skulls teams come out, and they have a big race, and whoever wins gets to represent the United States in all of their international races that year. And so we won that race. And then the boat still hadn't been qualified for the Paralympics, so we had to go to a qualification regatta in Serbia in May of 2012. And you know, luckily enough, we won that. And we qualified, and then we went to the Paralympics in uh, in London. And then after May, we moved from Florida to Charlottesville, Virginia, and rode out of the University of Virginia Boathouse. And, yeah, we just kind of followed that same pattern, you know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday uh, intervals, and then the rest is recovery stuff. And then my kind of focus was in the gym was just to add some mass because I, I had lost, like, a ton of muscle mass, obviously, um, from my injury so you know the kind of the we figured kind of the best bang for your buck in terms of stuff i could do in the gym would just be to add as much mass as i possibly could um and you know it worked out pretty well we got bronze if we had another year we might have won but uh you know pretty happy with that what how much weight did you put on you know uh from where you came back injury wise how much muscle were you able to put on you know i didn't i never weighed myself but I can tell you when I was in the hospital, I was like a skeleton. Um, you could see all the veins like in my, in my uh, skull and everything. And so I had lost a lot of weight. And then I was able to do um, 10 by 11 pull-ups with about a minute rest in between. And so I don't know if that really tells you how you know, about the size, but I, I added a, a pretty decent amount. I probably, I would say I probably added at least 20 pounds. What kind of, what kind of gym lifts were you doing? Were you doing, I mean, chin-ups, dip bench press, curls, bench pulls, you know, I don't know if you're dead, I don't know if you can, can you deadlift? I'm not sure if you're able to deadlift or not, but uh, stuff like that. Yeah. So I did, um, I did a ton of pull-ups, uh, a ton of bench press and, I would do supplemental stuff. Yeah, I would. Uh, I would basically do, uh, you know, bent rows, upright rows, uh, dips, push-ups, uh, horizontal pull-ups, a lot of overhead pressing. Um, and I actually would do. I so one of the things that I wanted to be able to do again in the gym was deadlift, and so I spent a good portion of my time in therapy trying to figure out, you know, how exactly I might be able to deadlift again one day. And what I figured out was if I strap my waist to a squat rack or some kind of anchor, then I can then bend at the waist and do straight leg deadlifts. 
And so I did a lot of those. I think I got all the way up to, I think my best ever was like 300 pounds in a straight leg deadlift, which, you know, I'm pretty happy with that. Um, but those would be kind of the main things I'd be doing. And my main workouts would be the one that I did every Monday was 10 by 10, pull up 10 by 10, uh, bench press at 135 or 145 pounds. And I would just kind of, my rest would be just walking between the bench and the pull up bar. So kind of kept that lactic acid, well, not necessarily lactic acid, but whatever the byproducts are that make your, the burning, uh, kind of kept that going in the muscles and, um, and I guess that kind of signals, you know, muscle growth. And so, yeah, that'd be that kind of my go-to workout. And I just do a, did a high, a lot of high volume. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting with, uh, were you, when you were doing deadlift, did you have a prosthesis on or off when you did that? Yeah, I wear, um, I wear my walking legs and <laughs> there's a couple of times when I had to send them in for, I think they're rated for like 300 pounds or something. And so from time to time I would have them like leaking the silicone fluid would be leaking out and I had to send them in for, um, for maintenance. Uh, but now I have my prosthetist develop me what I call weightlifting legs so I can kind of do squats. Um, and basically it's just, a socket that goes around my residual limb and then ends at the end. And so there's no prosthetic attachment to it. And so I what I can kind of do is I can sit on the floor and kind of push up with my, with my glutes and that kind of makes me stand up. And I also use those for, uh, for deadlifting now as well. Hey folks, human performance outlier podcast is very happy to announce that we have brought on butcher box as one of our sponsors uh, with ButcherBox, you can get some high-quality meat and cut out the middleman so that you save quite a bit on what would normally be the charge you'd get at the grocery store. Uh, with that, on your first order, if you use promo code HPO, you'll get 20% off plus free bacon. Sean, why don't you tell them about your experience with ButcherBox? Yeah, I mean, I've used ButcherBox you know, for quite a while now. I've run through several of their, their uh, different boxes. And, you know, for me, and, and by the way, that's a pretty good deal there uh, relative to some of the other stuff I've seen out there. But it has been, uh, you know, very consistently good, a good product. You know, it's always been, you know, the, the quality of the meat's been very good. Uh, for you guys that are concerned about it, they are a 100% antibiotic, hormone-free product that is a grass-finished product. The meat comes out of Australia, uh, and it has a very... Uh, I find, you know, because and I'll be honest, I, I, I prefer grain-fed beef in general, but I find that this particular uh, grass-finished product uh, tastes pretty solid. I mean, it's pretty good. You know, a lot of the, the grass-finished uh, meat can taste a little bit uh, almost gamey, uh, and I don't find that to be the case uh, with, with the Butcher Box product, and probably because of the length of time the animal spent on grass and they get a little bit more marbling in there and I think that helps. And so I've had a, uh, a very good experience with them and I highly recommend them. All right, folks, head over to butcherbox.com and hit promo code HPO. Thank you and back to the show. Oh, when you're competing in a rowing Paralympic, is it a 2K, 2,000 meter row or what's the distance on that? It is now, uh, but back in 2012, it was a uh, 1K and... They just changed it after uh, Rio de Janeiro. They changed it to 2K. How fast did you guys row that in? Um, our best time was four minutes. Um, yeah, I was going to say that's that would be what I guess something like that. Yeah. It's harder to it's harder to do it in a boat, uh, particularly yeah. a two man boat versus a Concept Two. And you know I'm trying to do 
you know, a 1K record right now, and I, I got to get I got to get around 249 to do that. So it's a bit of a pain. <laughs> but um, so, what made you leave rowing and decide to go do something else? Where you, you decide I'm I'm just tired of rowing. I don't want to try. I don't want to try to keep competing. What what made you switch on to the next the next venture? Yeah, um, I I enjoyed rowing. I didn't you know I didn't love it or anything. I think what I loved about rowing was just the uh, I loved training. I think is really what it was. And so kind of what happened was after the 2012 season, I wasn't sure if I wanted to continue on because I knew the kind of dedication it was going to take. And I wasn't sure if I was really wanted to go through with that. Um, but I decided I did want to, and my partner decided she wanted to as well. But she had been kind of recruited for the biathlon team as well. And then so she kind of went away and did biathlon for a while and I was kind of stuck back by myself rowing. And then we kind of came back together in the spring. And then we uh, and then we went to South Korea for world championships that year in 2013. And we placed fourth. And so to me, that felt like a, a real disappointment because I kind of wanted to be able to... I, I felt like we should have been able to win. And then so my partner decided she wanted to continue to do biathlon. And at that point, I was thinking, um, you know, nothing against her, but I don't want to spend my time training twice a day, six days a week uh, to row with somebody else that isn't training for just rowing. Because um, I kind of figure if you're going to do a sport and you're going to try and be the best in the world, you have to do just that sport for, you know, at least 11 months out of the year. And so I, could, I decided to kind of hang it up um, and I had this bike ride that I wanted to do, you know, I was, I was, had been thinking about it for a while, ever since I was in recovery, I learned how to ride the bike. It took me like nine months to figure it out. And so I wanted to put that to use. And so I figured that would be, just be a good time to, to go ahead and do this, this big bike ride. Yeah. You know, one thing that, that I find really interesting about kind of your trajectory back into like, you know, sports and fitness and just you know, mobility in general is I, you know, like I think of, like, I try to put myself in the situation. I think my mind first would go to, you know, what can I do physically that I'm not going to have to reinvent something for? So like, you know, the pull-ups, <laughs> the bench press, that sort of thing makes a whole lot of sense because the mechanics of that are going to stay relatively similar uh, but where you, you seem to kind of keep inching further and further towards like, how can I do these things that I shouldn't be able to do because I have to kind of reinvent how to do them. I mean, maybe there were some other people who had a little bit of a blueprint there, like with the squatting and the, and the deadlifting mm -hmm. and stuff. But a lot of that had to been for you, had to been you just saying, okay, if I want to do this, I have to figure this out. I have to go hunt down people that can help me figure out the mechanics that are going to have to be be done to be able to do this with the prosthetics and then, you know, ultimately running too. And this is something I'm really interested too. And in, with, uh, with running specifically, like when you kind of first started into it, like uh, just the, like when I start a training program from scratch or I'm working with someone who's starting from scratch, like we, we kind of try to develop this, this uh, rate of perceived exertion. Uh, and a lot of times we'll use heart rate and things like that to kind of get them kind of in tune with that process. And, uh, for you, given like the energy requirement differences and the efficiency differences, 
did you go about it in a way like that where you were like, I'm going to try to target a pace at this heart rate or at this effort? Or were you just out there kind of simply saying, I need to figure out a way to make this as efficient as I can given given what I'm working with and then all along the way kind of also assessing like how well do these prosthetics work versus something else I could maybe get made? Oh, yeah. I mean, once I figured out the mechanics of it, so for the bike ride, the hardest part was figuring out you know, how to make the prosthetics work to ride a bike uh, for a double above knee amputee. But once you figure that out, and then running, so uh, I don't know if you guys have seen any video of me running, but I don't swing my legs underneath my body. I don't, so basically, imagine if you were trying to run with your knee totally locked out, you just swing it out to the side. So, and that's what I do, so I kind of swing it out to the side. And so once you figure out those mechanics, I don't think there's really anything that's going to be different about kind of the philosophy of, you know, how running works or how cycling works. Um, it's basically, the, so for running, it's basically the same premise. I'm planting my left foot and then using the rest of my body to propel myself forward. And I land on the right foot and I repeat that. So it's the same thing, except I'm swinging my legs out to the side and I'm using prosthetics. Um but uh, yeah, I would have to experiment uh, with what. So each prosthetic running foot, I'm sure you've seen the Blade Runner. So you kind of, it's a, basically a spring made out of carbon fiber. Um, so each one is kind of, they have a rating, a weight category rating. So, you know, a person weighing 130 pounds is supposed to use a category four. A person weighing 140 pounds is supposed to use category for high or something like that and so i would kind of have to figure out which one of those categories was kind of most efficient for me at the speed that i was planning to run at so when i was doing triathlons i had to run i had to train for a 5k and so i would use a higher weight category because i figured i was going faster and then putting more uh more force into the prosthetic foot and then when i was running marathons i would use a lower category because i wasn't running as fast so I did have to kind of experiment with that, and that was, you know, usually just go out and run, you know, five one Ks, and if I was faster than what the other category, then I just kind of went with it. Um, but I don't think the training philosophy is going to be any different um, in terms of, you know, how you how you approach heart rate, how you approach pacing, all that stuff is exactly the same. I think. Do you have any? Co- did you get any coaching for any of this stuff? I did. So uh, for rowing, uh, I trained with uh, my my strength and conditioning coach was Rob McDonald out of Jim Jones, um, and no, my Bobby rowing, Maxim. Yeah, Bobby, Bobby Maxim. Maximus, I know yeah. I know him well. Yeah, me and him interact quite a bit. We might we, we might actually try to get him on the show one of these times. I'd like to I'd like to talk to Bobby. Yeah. Well, let me know if I can help out with that. That'd be an awesome interview. Um, so he helped me with uh, – he did my strength and conditioning program. And then our rowing coaches, I kind of had a few. I had one that I started with in D.C. that kind of taught me. And then I moved down to Florida, and we had a couple coaches down there. And then we moved up to Virginia, um, and we got another set of coaches. So uh, Roger Payne was the, the boatman for, for University of Virginia, and he, would, he volunteered to come out and, and look at us and coach us. And then also I actually – contacted uh brad allen lewis who wrote the book assault on lake casitas and asked him if he would come out and coach us and he said yeah sure why not 
So we had that kind of duo coaching us for 2012 and 2013. And then I didn't have a coach for the cycling because I didn't really train for the cycling. I just uh, made sure that my prosthetics fit well. And my theory on it was I don't have a time limit for this. So I'm just going to start and the first little section of the ride will be training for the next section. We'll be training for the next section. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, you know, obviously it worked. Uh, And then for triathlon, I went back and trained. That's when I moved to Salt Lake City and worked with uh, Maximus. And he wrote my, uh, my triathlon program. And then for the month of marathons, I was uh, self-coached using uh, Maffetone method. When you uh, so tell me about because you started doing some fundraising for the veterans, and can you talk a little bit about that? Was it was it was a coast to coast ride, and how far did you go? What was your? I mean, where did you start? Where did you finish? Where did you ride through? And how long did it take you? And tell us about that that cross the USA ride, you know, a little bit. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I started in. Bar Harbor, Maine, uh, in, uh, on October 13th of 2013. And what I did was I rode down to Richmond, Virginia, down the coast. And then I went straight across to San Francisco. And then I went down the coast on the Pacific Coast Highway uh, all the way down to Camp Pendleton. And I finished there. And so in total... That was something like 5,180 miles, and it took me 181 days. And the way I approached it would be I'd just ride for – at the in the beginning, like I said, you know, I was kind of – the beginning was training for the end. So when I first started, I said 30 miles a day will be my, my goal. So I'll run I'll, – I'll ride 30 miles, and then I'll stop, and wherever that is, I'll mark it. And then we'll go find a, a spot to park uh, my U-Haul. I kind of retrofitted a U-Haul with some windows and uh, a couple cots. Uh, and my brother would drive behind me. So we would go park the RV in like a church parking lot or something like that, sleep, and then continue on the next day. And then eventually I increased that to 35, 40 miles. Um, but that'd be kind of my approach. That was my approach for that. And then along the way, I would have a communications team kind of, you know, uh, reaching out to towns that I was going to be going through in front of me and, you know, try and get a little bit of uh, media coverage, try and get some some receptions for me uh, where I could come and talk and, and raise money that way. And, yeah, I mean, it was... I'm really happy with it. We raised uh, on the, on the bike ride, we raised $125,000. Um, so, you know, I'm really pleased with that. And yeah, I, I, it was awesome. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's incredible. And, and, you know, it's, I can't stress enough the importance to, to, for the awareness for, for our vets. And, you know, like I said, having taken care of a lot of them, I mean, they're, they're, they're a group that that definitely needs, uh, needs the help. And thank you for doing that. Now, so you finished, so when did you, let me ask you because now you decide now I, I, now that I've I've ridden all the way across the country I've, I've been to the, the Olympics as a rower, yeah. <laughs> so now I'm going to run 31 marathons in 30 days because I'm not crazy enough yet. <laughs> Let me uh, how do you, I mean because I don't know because Zach runs 100 mile races I mean I think you guys are both nuts for doing that stuff but but, but you know my hat off to you guys. 
Um, so, Zach, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm trying to calculate. I mean, that's like almost 800 miles in a month is what I'm, you know, if, if, if I'm doing the math right, something like that, 700, 800 miles of running in a month. And I don't, I don't even think you do that volume in a month, do you, Zach? And I mean, how do you, or, or if you do, how do you, how do you prepare for that? I mean, how do you train for that? Did you train for that? Or do you just, just like the biker, I said, I'm going to take it one day at a time and keep going. Or was there, a, was there a plan, you know, leading up to this? Because I, I just, uh, to me, it's, it's, you know, just running one of them for me would be more than I'd, I'd ever want to do. But uh, to sit there and go 31 and 31 days is, is incredibly made. So how did you train for it? How did you plan for it? Um, and then talk to us a little bit about your nutrition, because, you know, me and Zach have sort of a kind of a, a some people would say unusual nutritional strategies. But how did you how did all that stuff play out for you? No, I'm on board with you guys in terms of the nutritional stuff. Um, I definitely trained for this one. Um, because the main reason was because I had that time limit. I had to run 26.2 miles every single day for 31 days straight. Whereas on the bike ride, you know, if I didn't, if I was feeling like I didn't want to ride that day, I wouldn't ride. I'd take the rest. Um, so I had that timeline that I had to meet. So I trained for 18 months, uh, specifically for the month of marathon challenge. And, you know, that was obviously on top of, the, the previous five years of, you know, training for other stuff. So I had that pretty big base already built up. Uh, I knew how to train. I, you know, I was used to the volume. And so I, I had always wanted to try the Maffetone method. And, um, so I figured this would be the perfect opportunity because my, my theory was I wasn't going to be running any of these marathons for, you know, for time. I was running them for completion. And so it seemed to me like the best way to approach it would be to pace in such a way that I wouldn't be going into glycolysis and then producing all these you know, damaging uh, byproducts that would break my body down even more than just running 26.2 miles. So I figured I needed to keep it all aerobic. Mm-hmm. And then so the Maffetone method kind of stuck out to me as the best way to go because it it trains that, you know, cardiovascular efficiency. And then I had actually, I'd heard about it, you know, in, in 2011 or something. I never had the opportunity to try it. So I wanted to try it. And so what my approach was, I would do about, I would do kind of a six week chunk where I would run, I, when I first started, I would run like an hour, three times a week, you know, separated by a day. So Monday, Wednesday, Friday, an hour. Uh, at my Maffetone uh, heart rate was 150, so uh, uh, under 150 beats per minute. Hey, Rob, let me just, because there's people out here that are not going to know what the Maffetone method is, can you or Zach kind of describe that briefly so people know know what you're talking about a little bit? Sure. I mean, Zach might be better at it than I am. I don't know. <laughs> I, I can jump in, and then you can fill in if you want to, but like the, the they, sometimes they call it the math method, which is just uh, like, you know, maximum aerobic function. So the idea there is that you're going to find a heart rate zone. And usually it's about, you know, a range of about five beats or so. Um, and then you're going to try to, you're just going to hammer in that, that zone. Like you're going to go up for runs and you're going to, you run within that. And then if it starts getting kind of difficult, then you kind of stop and you just keep micro stressing with that. And what you should see if done effectively is that your pace continues to kind of drop within that heart rate zone. So essentially what you're doing is you're building an enormous aerobic base. And um, 
you know, like when, when it's kind of done right and effectively, like people see that pace, like I said, kind of continue to drop. Eventually it kind of starts to plateau based on like efficiency and like your own kind of ability levels and things like that. Uh, but I think a lot of people use it. Some people use it holistically, like for an entire training program. Uh, it kind of has some limitations then because if you kind of flex outside of that heart rate zone, your body's not necessarily equipped to handle those systems. But for a, for an, a, a program like what Rob is going for with 31 marathons in, in 31 days, it's probably right on the money because like, like you said, you don't want to be going glycolytic. You want to recover as quick as possible for the next day. So staying in that maximum aerobic function side of things is going to kind of put you in that position to burn super high levels of fat, uh, bounce back really quick for the next effort. And, you know, I, this is a kind of a question. I'm sorry. I'm going to ask a question in the middle of this explanation, but <laughs> my, my question was like, did you find that your math improved over the course of the 31 marathons in 31 days? Or was that just too much volume to really kind of completely bounce back from day to day? Or did you start seeing improvements then start seeing fades or stuff like that? How did that kind of change? It was interesting because during, so over the course of the training, I never, I didn't do like the five times one mile thing like you're supposed to. Mm -hmm. I would just kind of, I would go for my two hour run that day. And then if I ran a little bit further than last time, or if I, you know, if I ran a little bit further than I have been running, then I kind of saw that as progress. Um, But during the actual event, during the 31 days, I kind of, when I first started, I kind of expected my first one in London was going to be good. Mm Mm-hmm. And then after that, it was just going to be me trying to stave off deterioration for as long as I could. And like in D.C. on my last one, I'd be, you know, kind of barely able to move and collapse or something like that. Um, But what I actually saw happen was I did follow that pattern a little bit. So my first one was good in London. And then the three after that were kind of, you know, they got a little bit longer, a little bit slower. But then after... New York, I actually started getting faster until my 10th one, which was in Chicago, was my fastest one of the whole thing. And then after I got to Chicago, I kind of leveled off. And if the, you know, if it was particularly, the only thing that would really change the the, the duration would be, you know, kind of the weather. So in, in Houston and in Texas, when I was down there, I hit three days of kind of a heat wave and high humidity. So I was a lot slower uh, on those days than on average. But once I got to that 10th one, it kind of, it kind of leveled off. And one other question too, about that, like what, what did you use to calculate your, your math pace? Cause I know like there's a couple different ways that I'll use with coaching clients and myself, like the kind of generic way or kind of, uh, more basic ways. I'll just take the 180 minus your age. And that's just assuming that that kind of heart rate of 180 is going to fit the general populace pretty nicely. And, if it's if a lot of times that does work, but there are times where people either have a really high max heart rate or a really low max heart rate, in which case then I'll I'll do like a a thirty minute time trial where they go as fast as they can for thirty miles sustainably, so they're not like going out of the gates way fast and fading, and then we'll take the last twenty minutes of that and average that heart rate, and that'll give us kind of that an average number that we can subtract the age from to kind of get a more personalized math. Uh, did you do something like that to get your one fifty number, or did you just kind of use the more basic formula i wish i could say i was as sophisticated as you are but i just did the (laughs) i just did the 180 minus your age and then um i kind of figured so 
Yeah, that's that's what I was. I wish I maybe if I. I wish I kind of uh, had reached out to, to Dr. Maffetone and just asked him some questions, but uh, I was always kind of wondering, you know, obviously that equation was meant for able-bodied people, so mm-hmm. how does it apply to an amputee, um, you know, with additions and subtractions? So I kind of figured maybe I should subtract five um, for being an amputee just to be safe, but then I figured I've also been an athlete for five years, mm-hmm. so maybe I should add five for that. So I just kind of... <laughs> So I just kind of went with that 150, and I was like, you know, I'm just going to go with 150 and see how it works. And I, like I said, I kind of saw that steady progress, mm-hmm. um, and then, you know, obviously result was, was what I wanted. So, And that's kind of the key. I think sometimes people overthink it a little bit, and they're like, well, i got to stay exactly here, figure it out. But ultimately, at the end of the day, if your pace is dropping at that given heart rate, then you're doing something right. So it sounds like yeah. you've, whether it was by accident or not, you found a, you found a workable system. So. <laughs> Yeah. So, um, yeah. So what I did training wise was, uh, you know, kept that heart rate. And then, so first six weeks I ran an hour three times a week and then I would do a test. So I think after that, after that first six weeks, I think I ran the Marine Corps marathon and then I did another six week chunk where I ran a li- either a little bit longer or I grouped it a little bit differently. So I might up it to like an hour and a half, three times a week. And then I attempted two marathons, and I actually failed on two marathons. So not a really good way to start uh, start your training. But um, what happened with that was I ran the one, and then I didn't. Eat, I don't think I ate enough carbohydrates to reload myself uh, for day two. And then I I bonked it like halfway, and I was like, okay, that's I'm done. And so I kind of corrected that, and then the next six weeks I ran a little bit longer and then I think I started grouping two of the runs back to back. Um, and I just kind of followed that pattern. Then I ran three and I, and I succeeded pretty easily. And then, so I just kind of followed that pattern for the whole 18 months of six weeks and then do a test and then change the stress a little bit, you know, longer runs, closer groups. And it got to the point where I think the last six weeks or maybe the last 12 weeks, it was like, Monday two hour run, Wednesday two hour run, Thursday run a marathon, and then Friday run like sixty to ninety minutes. Um, and then in between those, I'd be going to the gym and just doing strength, just straight strength, you know, like heavy lifts, just trying to get that supporting musculature uh, nice and strong. Um, and that was about it. And then yeah, I just that's uh, that's how I trained for it. And then. The most marathons I ever ran in a row in training was uh, five because I figured if once I get to five, if I keep going, then I'm just going to want to keep going to 31. So it's 25 more, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I did five and I was like, I felt pretty good. I think you could probably do 26 more, you know? <laughs> yeah. You know, th- th- that's a. Uh... When I when I think of the 31 marathons in 31 days, I the thing that I mean that just screams ultra marathon to me, just in the way that like this the amount of time you're spending out there. And one thing I I always like to think about like ultra marathons that are like 100 miles in distance or longer is it's not a question of if something's gonna go wrong, it's a question of when and then what are you gonna do about it. And the guys and gals who seem to execute the most consistently, they're the ones who when those problems pop up. They're able to squash them or fix them and then move on quickly and not fixate on it. 
So I can't imagine that there weren't scenarios during that process that popped up that you didn't expect. Did you, do you have any that kind of stuck out to you where you're like, that one almost derailed me. I'm glad I figured that out or anything like that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm glad that I did the tests with, I'm glad that I did tried to do the test with the multiple marathons back to back because that really helped me to figure out what I was going to need to do in order in terms of eating uh, on the on a day to day basis, and then also it just kind of helped me mess around with how I was going to pace and how I was going to break down each of these marathons. So what I ended up doing for most of the month marathons was I would run uh, it's forty two kilometers, forty two point two kilometers. So 12 i would do 12 kilometers and then i would take a 20 minute break 12 kilometers 20 minute break and then i would do two of what am i up to i would do two of what am i up to now like 24 20 you got 2 of nine after that um and then with that 20 minute break so i take three 20 minute breaks and then during that time period like i said i'm trying to prevent my body from breaking down and one of the biggest challenges I was faced with in terms of you know my body breaking down was skin breakdown on my residual limbs because no matter how comfortable I get my prosthetic I told you you know that's the most important thing but no matter how comfortable I get that thing there's always going to be some movement uh, of the socket against the skin and so uh, doing that enough times you know however many 40,000 steps uh, a day is going to eventually rub that skin off and you know eventually eventually it's, you're not going to be able to you're not going to be able to walk anymore so what i ended up doing was i kind of had to learn the hard way so i ran that first marine corps marathon and i had all these like skin abrasions on my leg and i kind of took note of where they were and every time i ran long i would just take chamois cream and put it on all these different spots on my leg and then I would put my legs uh, uh, my, my, my liner over top of that and then that kind of really helped to reduce that that skin abrasion uh, aspect of it um, but even so it still got to a point where there was a lot of fluid build up kind of on the outer corners of my legs and it never really went away um, till I was done. So what I, I but I just kind of got to a point where, uh, you know, I would run for the first mile and it would hurt a lot. And then after that first mile, I kind of had pounded him into the submission. So it kind of stopped hurting after that. Hey Rob, let me, let me, uh, two, two points. One with recovery between, you know, cause you're running 31 marathons in, in, in 31 days, any recovery stuff you do in between, do you do any kind of ice baths or cold therapy? And then what's been your nutritional strategy then? And then, and then perhaps currently as you've kind of gone through all this stuff over the years. Yeah. You know, my recovery strategy was, uh, you know, eat, eat and sleep basically. But, um, we were doing this, so we were traveling in an RV, so it was all in 31 different cities, and so in between each city, we'd be in, I'd be in the back of an RV in a king-size bed, just laying down, relaxing, and then my mom came along, because she's a massage therapist, so she would give me two massages uh, just about every day, and 
So I had that, and then I would kind of, I would just apply, you know, salves or whatever stuff to kind of help anything that was going on in my stumps heal up. Um, and then in terms of nutrition, um, I started doing what I would call low carb in 2015 when I was training for triathlon because I wanted to drop some weight. And so I started doing low carb. I was like 100 grams a day. And I kind of maintained that through my training. And then on the actual month of marathons, we pre-made a bunch of food and froze it. And so I would eat between probably, I was probably eating 150 to 175 grams of carbs a day. And so how I would do that was I would eat a bonk breaker bar at each one of my uh, breaks while I was running. And then afterwards, I would eat like a banana uh, and some sweet potato chips. And then all of that together would kind of combine into about 150 to 175. And if somebody gave me a donut, I might eat a donut or something. <laughs> People like to bring us baked goods. Uh, so I might eat a donut instead of the banana or something like that. Um, but then, so the way it would work was after I finished running, I would go, I would, you know, take a shower and then lay down in the bed and my mom would make me this meat sauce, uh, meat and cheese sauce that we, that we had pre-made, my wife and I had pre-made, uh, and I would pour that over a bag of, uh, epic pork rinds. So I'd kind of mix that all up, you know, eat that down with my banana or my sweet potato chips and then later in the day, I would eat another bag of pork rinds. And then later in the day, I would eat usually eggs and bacon or eggs and sandwich meat or something like that. And then I'd have some more sweet potato chips. And it was almost as hard to eat all that as it was to run the marathons. I was so, I was just perpetually stuffed the entire time. And it was. You also have to keep in mind I was like riding around in the back of an RV. So like the first few days, my stomach was just, you know, upset just from all the bouncing around. Mm. So I just had to cram it down. Yeah, that's that's interesting. So is that um, is that kind of the same type of nutrition plan you're following now? Are you still kind of doing the, uh, you know, I would definitely say what you're doing would be considered keto within kind of a hard charging athlete type, like template. Is that have you stuck with that, or are you doing anything different now? Or yeah, no, I still do that. Um, I probably would be even. I probably even do less carbs now. I don't really. I counted it a lot back when I was training because I had these huge objectives. I was trying to make the Paralympics in mm -hmm. 2016, so I was. I kept a calorie log, like calorie for calorie, in my in my training log. And then when I was training for the month marathons, I paid a, a really close attention to it. But anymore, it's like. Basically, just eat you know eggs and bacon and cheese for breakfast, and then for dinner we'll have some vegetables or something, and then you know whatever that adds up to. I'm not really uh, all that concerned with it, um, but I would say in general, you know, I'm probably pretty low carb still, and you know I feel great and I love it, and I actually did do uh, uh, once I heard about uh, once I heard you on Joe Rogan podcast. I did uh, I did carnivore for a month. And I love that, um, but I think I'm, if I kept it up, I probably would have gotten divorced because my <laughs> wife was a big fan. <laughs> she she really has a she has a different relationship with food than me. She likes a lot of variety, and she thinks you know she like meals are kind of a, a 
communal thing that so everybody's supposed to eat the same thing so um but yeah i mean i i love the doing carnivore too and i almost kind of felt like when i was doing carnivore i was i kind of was kind of wondering it's like it's either you should do absolutely no carbs or you should go kind of all the way with carbs it seemed to me like it's, it, if if you do kind of in between, then maybe for your higher intensity stuff it wouldn't be as good. But for whatever reason, when you do absolutely zero high intensity stuff, uh, is maintainable. What do you guys think about that? I think Sean might have muted his microphone on accident. But uh... oh yeah, no, I'm, I'm <laughs> yeah, back. Yeah, I'm just, I have my kid. My kids are in the background yelling. I didn't want that to come on the podcast. No, but I mean, I, yeah, I mean, you know, certainly from my personal experience, and you know, I've got a lot of confirmation from other folks, but I mean, I certainly maintain pretty high level intensity stuff, you know, basically carb free, which I think, and I think we touched on this in a couple other podcasts, you know, with Ben Bickman and we and somebody else we talked, Ted Naiman, I think, just talking about the fact that a carnivorous diet is just a little bit more protein heavier than you would see with a standard keto diet where you're, you know, you're really limiting your protein a lot of times. And I think that protein, particularly when it comes to athletics is, 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 is a big component of, uh, you know, sustaining that in performance and, and, and maintain, maintaining muscle. And I think that, uh, you know, just has a, you know, an overall more beneficial, you know, uh, um, effect than, than, than a straight up keto diet. I know cause I, I was keto for a couple of years and, and man, I'll tell you when I started putting a bunch of meat in my diet, my performance got better. There's just that it just is what it is, and why that is, I can speculate about the the stuff that's in meat. And I think I think it's a it's a pretty good performance fuel. But uh, yeah, I mean, you know, your body's gonna, you know, you you've got you know, protein is for structure, and either fat or carbohydrates are your energy source. And you know, you sometimes if you get real good at u- utilizing one, you get real good at it in your performance as well. And, and you know, some people are really really suited for carbohydrates, and they prefer that, and that works well. One thing. You know, and I want to go back to the beginning of the podcast when we talked about mental health because I think we talked about it with Georgie about you know insulin resistance and you know and mood and, and mental health and I think that you know when you're an athlete you're, you're usually generally pretty insulin sensitive you know you're you're, you're if you're taking in carbs you're, you're dealing with them pretty well you, you maintain insulin sensitivity on and in a lot of cases but not always uh, and I think you know. Just from a, we know that exercise enhances mood. It keeps people from getting depressed, and so that's one of those strategies you can do. But as you get older, and maybe maybe you'll do like I do and just keep competing until you drop dead. I mean, that's what I'm not trying to do. But you know, I think that you know, as you get older and you and you stop doing as much exercise and you're still eating this higher carbohydrate diet, and if your insulin sensitivity sort of you know goes down, and you become more insulin resistant. I think that's where some of that mental health. You know that's tied into that, and so it'd be interesting to see. Are you are you planning on doing any more competing? I mean, I assume you're still training and working out. Do you have any more competitions going up? And then tell us about how much money you're you able to raise on that marathon thing, because I think that's also we need to know about that. Oh yeah. Um, so right now, I'm not really doing anything. I'm not going to be doing any more. Uh, you know, world class level training. I think that aspect for me is kind of. Um, it takes. It requ- the requirements for it are just too high for me at this point in my life. So I'll, I don't want to have to train two days away, six days a week, and sacrifice you know everything in order to to go for 
you know, making the Paralympics. So in terms of competing at that level, I'm probably done. But right, what I'm doing now, um, I, have you heard of Warrior Games? I have, yes. And Invictus Games? Yes, definitely, yeah, Invictus yeah, Games. So yeah. uh, for anybody that isn't familiar, Warrior Games is it's kind of like a Paralympics for wounded veterans. And then Invictus Games, uh, U.S. veterans. And then Invictus Games is kind of the same thing, except for wounded. Uh, I guess I guess it's NATO, NATO veterans. So, and they just kind of a thing that it's it's uh, something that Prince Harry uh, invented in uh, a few years ago, and they kind of do it once every couple years. And so, I've always wanted to do it, but I've always been doing this other stuff that I couldn't really take off time from training. Um, so this year I did Warrior Games and had a great time out there. I did the uh, I did the track, so I did 800 and 1500. Um, and so in this October I'm going to be doing the Invictus Games. Um, so that's what I'm kind of doing in in terms of uh, competition now. And what was the second part of that? Well, I was just talking about. I was going back to the just the, the mental health side of things. It's just staying insulin sensitive, either through diet or exercise. And I think that's just something that, you know, because I don't know how old you are now, but at some point you're going to be 50 and 60, and you may not be exercising all the time, and you're still going to be, you know, you're still going to be who you are. You're still going to be a double amputee. I mean, that, yeah. that that's challenging in life regardless. I mean, you're, you're doing well with adapting to that, but that, that's never going to go away, and so it's always going to be there, and so you have to deal with that you know, mentally, you know, and, and, and so I just think that uh, by, you know, and, and this is basic, don't eat a bunch of garbage and you, your body works better, but so does your brain. Yeah, so, I th- yeah, like I said, I'm not going to be doing a whole lot of, uh, you know, high-level competing, but yeah, I'll definitely continue to, uh, I don't see myself not ever having some kind of physical goal that I'm I'm shooting for. Like after the Invictus Games this year, I would like to do something like run 50 miles or 100 miles and just see what that's like. So I'm always going to have some kind of side project that I'm going to be working on uh, in terms that that will require me to train and, and be fit. And But I think for the most part, I'm just going to be focusing on, yeah, probably like you guys, these longevity and uh, and just, you know, overall health. That's awesome. I, I, if you, if you could also um, share with the the audience kind of where they can find you, and if if you're still taking donations for any of your stuff, if there's a spot that they can look for for that too, if they're interested. Oh yeah, that was the other part of the question. Uh, how much did we raise? Um, so with the bike ride we raised one twenty five thousand, and with the month of marathons, uh, my team and I raised. Uh, Probably like two hundred and fifteen thousand. So between the two, it's a it's a pretty good number. And I'm I kind of want to keep going until uh, I reach a million. I'll be kind of be my lifetime uh, lifetime goal. Um, I am still taking donations. People can go to robjonesjourney.com, or you can just Google Rob Jones. I'm the first one that will come up uh, with all the news articles. I got really good SEO. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, robjonesjourney.com, and then, you know, I have all the social media stuff is uh, at robjonesjourney if anybody wants to reach out to me. Um, 
and yeah, people can people can continue to. I'm going to leave those donation pages up, you know, for forever. So awesome. Well, yeah, thank you so much for coming on the show, Rob. If there's anything else you want to chat out, we certainly can. Otherwise, uh, definitely keep us posted about what you're up to. And um, if you ever have anything big and exciting kind of coming down, you want to hop back on, let us know that as well. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of playing around with the idea. I want to do something that can continue to raise money, but isn't at the level of doing you know, something like 31 marathons in 31 days and something I can kind of do every year. So I'm, I'm kind of trying to maybe playing around with the idea of doing like two or three 50 to 100 mile runs a year where people can come out and donate to that. Mm-hmm. And that feels like something that I could do kind of every single year, like three times a year do that. So I'm kind of toying around with that idea. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, that's my only real, I don't ha- I don't have any kind of big, big projects uh, right now, but I will be sure to let you guys know uh, when I think of something. Yeah. Well, I, there's, there's plenty of uh, crazy people, myself included, that would welcome you in, welcome you into the 50 mile and hundred mile side of things. So uh, let me know yeah. if there's anything I can help you with, with that stuff. Well, that's the uh, the tricky thing for me. Maybe you can advise me on this, but the tricky thing for me is the way that I run is not really conducive to running on trails. Like mm-hmm. I pretty much can't run on trails um, because I'd be tripping on stuff all the time because I swing my legs out to the side. Sure. So I think what I would have to do is find uh, ultra marathons that are on the road. And I know bad water, but mm-hmm. maybe I should uh, before I attempt that, I should try some other ones first. <laughs> Yeah, there's, they're a little, a little more sneaky because the trail scene certainly kind of blew up here in North America. But yeah, there's a lot of, whether it's track ultra, ultras, short loop ultras, um, and then uh, even long point to point like road type stuff too that I think would accommodate your your running style a little better than the rocky and rooty trails. So uh, yeah, um, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting it's an interesting sport, but uh, it'd be cool to see you out there. Yeah, I will. Uh, I think I'm probably going to be. I'm, I want to experiment with that. So, definitely. Yeah, Rob. There's also on the concept too. A lot of people are raising money by doing you know long rows, like hundred thousand you know rows, yeah. twenty four hour rows, and stuff like that. So that that might be an option for you as well. Or you could team up. You know, you get a team together. You know, you get a team of you know, Paralympic guys and do a hundred thousand you know meter row or something like that, or you know a couple of marathons, and that might be another another avenue to raise money. I'd certainly. Uh, it's, it's obviously a worthy cause and you're a great guy, great representative for doing this stuff. And, you know, like I said, all, all respect to you. It's wonderful having you on and uh, hopefully we'll get to chat with you again. I hope so guys. And, uh, yeah, maybe my next thing will be 150 miles of Zach Bitter and then I'll do a 24 hour rowing challenge with uh, Dr. Baker. What do you think? There you go. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. I'll, I'll do the first 10 minutes. <laughs> well, I appreciate you guys giving me this opportunity to come and talk to you. It's been a real pleasure. And, uh, yeah, like I said, I'm a big fan of both of you. So, uh, thanks a lot. Awesome. Well, the, the pleasure is all ours. Thanks for coming on. I'll talk to you guys later. Hey everyone, Sean and I are excited to announce that Human Performance Outliers Podcast has partnered with Thrive Market. Thrive is an online grocery store that focuses on making high quality grocery shopping easy. By going to thrivemarket.com backslash HPO and shopping, you not only support the HPO podcast, but will also receive 25 to 50% off traditional retail prices. On top of that, with every annual membership, Thrive will donate a free annual membership to low income family, teacher, or veteran. If you don't make up your membership fee and savings, 
Thrive will refund your membership fee. The link can be found in the show notes. Thanks for your support. Hey folks, thanks again for tuning in to the Human Performance Outliers podcast. Just a couple quick notes before you leave. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us at hpopodcast at gmail.com. That's hpopodcast at gmail.com. We're both also on social media. On Twitter, you can find me at zbitter. That's at Z-B-I-T-T-E-R. And you can find Sean at sbakermd. That's at S-B-A-K-E-R-M-D. We're both also on Instagram, where you can find me at Zach Bitter, that's at Z-A-C-H-B-I-T-T-E-R. And for Sean, it's at Sean Baker, 1967. That's at S-H-A-W-N-B-A-K-E-R, 1967. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast.